Well, that was Richard Dawkins, uh, the world's most famous atheist. Uh, Professor Dawkins is a biologist at, at Oxford, I believe. He's actually quite vocal in his uh, and articulate in his rejection of religion. And he rejects faith for all kinds of reasons. The violence of religion is one of them. To Dawkins, all religions have violent past and violent potential. Uh, many religions, he points out, have violent texts which describe a violent deity who actually commands atrocious acts. Now, usually when we think of violent religions, we think of Islam and uh, fundamentalist terrorists who draw their inspiration from the Koran. But what about our faith? If Christians are honest, our holy book also contains very graphic stories of God committing and commanding terrible acts of violence. Christians cannot critique Islam for divinely sanctioned violence and not discuss our own violent past and the violence in our own holy book. Christians have been as violent as Muslims and uh, defended it as uh, the command of God. It's for this reason that a lot of people like Dawkins reject religion entirely and Christianity in particular. They just can't imagine how a God of love could also be a God who orders the destruction of innocent people. They want nothing to do with that God. Now, the problem of violence in the Old Testament is one that a lot of people have as they wrestle with faith. And it's also the next topic in our current series, which is called Six Reasons I Might Lose My Faith and Six Reasons I Won't. The series is part of our ongoing effort here at Rooftop to be a place where skeptics and believers alike can deal openly and honestly with doubts and questions. Uh, the atheists and the skeptics in our lives, they're not dumb. You know, they have good reasons for not following Jesus. Now we have good responses. We want to deal with their reasons fairly and honestly, but we also want to talk about uh, what we would say in response to those. Now, so far we've talked about uh, a couple different objections, the idea that science explains the world better than God does. Last week, Skylar talked about the problem with the world religions. And this morning, I want to talk about violence in the Old Testament. Uh, but I'm not just talking about violence. That'd be one thing. But that's not really what we've got to talk about. What we have to talk about is a different kind of violence, the divinely ordered slaughter of entire people groups, regardless of age and gender, based on religious identity alone. That's the type of violence we need to talk about because that's what we find in the Bible. What I mean is there is war in the Bible. I mean, there's war in practically every holy book. Humans have always fought wars, and the Bible includes wars, uh, the first part of the Bible especially. Now, Crash course, if you don't know, the Bible is generally divided into two parts. The first two-thirds of the Bible talk about uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his efforts to form a nation. And the second, third, the last third of the Bible talks about uh, the arrival of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Now, in both of these books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there, there is violence. But in the Old Testament in particular... Uh, there is something else. There are repeated examples of God ordering his people to violently destroy entire nations because they are in the way. For the most part, this happened in the taking over of Canaan. It's called the Canaanite conquest. You, you see, Canaan is the land that God promised to give his people, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. God wanted to give his people this land, his land, in, in order to build a holy kingdom to be a blessing to the world and out of which could come a Messiah. But the problem here is that Canaan had already been filled up with other people practicing pagan religions. God needs to drive them out, so he actually tells the Israelites to do it. He tells the Israelites to wage war, and he tells them to do so in particularly violent ways. Let me give you just a few examples. 
And in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, for example, God tells the Israelites this. When the Lord, your God, brings you into land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, God actually gets even more specific. Chapter 20 in Deuteronomy, it's sort of regarded as their war manual for how to conduct war in, in Canaan. And God tells the people this. In the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you, As an inheritance in Canaan, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, as the Lord has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. But, but, qualification, do not destroy the trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Okay, so God explains here. That the primary reason they must completely destroy everything that breathes in Canaan is because the pagan religion of the Canaanites might poison Israel, and that can't happen. God doesn't trust Israel to remain pure in the face of such pagan influence, so their enemies must just be destroyed. Everything that breathes needs to die, kill all the people, but God says, leave the trees. Kill the people, leave the trees, because those are a resource you will need. But the people, no mercy. There's no mercy in this dojo. So with these instructions, the Israelites entered Canaan and they did battle against their enemies. Sometimes they killed everything that breed. Sometimes they didn't. Occasionally they actually didn't kill everybody. And God would get kind of upset that they didn't obey him to the letter. In the pre-conquest battle with the Moabites in the book of Numbers, for example, the Israelites beat the Moabites uh, And then they kept some of the women for themselves as booty. They didn't kill them. And as a result, God sent a plague on Israel, killing 24,000 Israelites, only when a man named Phinehas killed all the remaining Moabite women did God relent. Phinehas is regarded as an Israelite hero. And even after Israel had entered Canaan, God commanded his people to remain vigilant against Canaanite pagan influence. In the book of 1 Samuel, for example, God sends his people under the leadership of King Saul uh, to destroy the nation of Amalek. The Lord says he actually would have done this. He would have destroyed Amalek much earlier, but the timing wasn't quite right. But things are different now, and the Amalekites need to be purged from the land for the crimes committed several hundred years earlier by their ancestors. Uh, Here is what Yahweh tells his people. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go. Attack the Amalekites. Totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants. Cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Do not spare them, put to death everything that breathes. Men, women, children, infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. As punishment for crimes committed by their ancestors hundreds of years earlier. 
Uh, so that'd be like God telling our enemies to destroy all Americans, regardless of age, because of the sins of our colonial forefathers. So these violent commands of God and the obedience of the Israelites to these commands is a problem. <laughs> uh, some people actually call it one of the thorniest issues in Christianity. And it's a problem for four reasons. First, it seems to conflict, seems to conflict with the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus comes centuries later as the Jewish Messiah, and shall we say, Jesus talks differently. Uh, he commands his people in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He says, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, not kill your enemies and their children and their camels. Uh, later in his life, Jesus instructs Peter to put away his sword. He says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. These teachings were what inspired Martin Luther King Jr. to make a, such a difference in our world, the nonviolent teachings of Jesus. And what needs to be emphasized here is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of the Father and is distinct from him, but Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. They are the same identical character. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in Colossians, he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the picture we get of God in the New Testament through Jesus is of a God of peace who refuses to raise up arms, who loves his enemies, refuses to resist them, and who seeks peace, not war. How do we reconcile who Jesus shows us God to be with the warrior God of the Old Testament? That's a good question, at least, maybe even a conundrum. Old Testament violence is a problem also because it seems really backwards to our modern world. Now, our world has agreed that this sort of violence is contemptible. Even though our world practices it, to be sure, we have all agreed that generally this is bad. In fact, absolutely, this is bad. And our world is better for deciding that. In fact, the modern word for God's behavior here might be, might be the word genocide. Now, I'm honestly not sure if that word fits because genocide usually involves the ethnic cleansing of people and the complete destruction of a, of a people group based on national identity. Now, I know this seems in, inconsistent, but, but elsewhere in the Old Testament, God commands the Israelites to welcome foreigners of the very nations he elsewhere tells them to destroy. So whatever motivations God has in commanding these acts, genocidal racism does not seem to be the cause. Having said that, I'm not going to work too hard to dispute the appropriateness of the word genocide because it's at least pretty close. Either way, either way, to our world, the God of the Bible does not always look like a very nice guy. It makes it hard for modern people to believe in the Judeo-Christian God in general and the authority of the Bible in particular. Thirdly, Old Testament violence is a problem because Christians have used it to justify their own violent actions. As I mentioned, despite the teachings of Jesus on nonviolence, Christians have occasionally found cause to kill, blow up, destroy, based on God's commands, people who blow up abortion clinics. Christian nations who murder indigenous peoples to take their land. 
Even the riot at the Capitol was called in some quarters the Jericho March, based on a Canaanite incident. Now, I know that we would say that these people, these people committing these acts, these terrible acts, they're not Christians. We would say that. But who are we to make that determination? They believe that the righteousness of their cause justifies their actions. And they believe that God called them to do so just as he told the Israelites to kill pagans. So based on what our holy book says, who are we to dispute that? But finally, Old Testament violence is a problem because it just doesn't seem to make sense. What I mean is, in certain ways, I just don't get it. I mean, if God really needed to get rid of pagans in Canaan, there were other ways that he could have done it and had done it in other incidents in the Bible. He could have driven them out through plague and drought. Why would God command his own people to do this and subject themselves to the psychological trauma that would result? I mean, I know soldiers who've come back from war severely traumatized forever by what they had to do. They have PTSD forever. It's a tragedy. Why would God command this for a people he loves? I mean, imagine being an Israelite soldier, sword in hand, being ordered by God to kill that baby, held in the arms by his pagan mother. Why would God do that to the baby? to the mother, and to the soldier. So for all kinds of reasons, this divinely commanded, the divinely commanded violence in the Old Testament, it's a problem. I will tell you, as you can tell, it's always been a problem for me. Now, in my own skepticism, my own struggle with doubt, this is one of my biggies. Ever since I really started reading the Bible when I was in college, I would get to these passages in the Old Testament and be like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with this. It's there. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to keep reading. Just keep reading. Just skip it. Get to it later. Now, I have studied it. I've researched it. I've read books. If I see a debate or a podcast on Old Testament violence, I'm, I'm all in. I want to understand this. And in my research, I've found that people have lots of different responses to the problem of Old Testament violence. How do people respond? Well, generally, people respond in one of five ways. And I want to describe these five ways to you and then talk about where that leaves us. And I will tell you that this might get a little long and a little confusing, and it probably won't answer your questions this morning. But even though this will be long, confusing, and ultimately unsatisfying, (laughs) I still think it will be useful. So tell that to the third service people. It was long, confusing, and not really satisfying, but give it a try. (laughs) So how do we respond to this problem? Well, some people, they just ignore the problem. Uh, They close their eyes to things that might challenge their belief. Honestly, this might be one of your tendencies. Uh, You you might prefer just to not know about this. Or or you might prefer to go to a church where they provide you simple answers. Of which there are none. At least on this topic. And I understand that. But I really don't think keeping our heads in the sand really serves the world. Uh, One of my callings in life as a teaching pastor is to help people understand that things are more complicated than than we want to believe they are. (laughs) The world is asking these complicated questions. We need to engage. Others reject religion because of the problem. I've already told you that plenty of people would just rather not worship our God or any God because he seems capable of such violence, and I get that, but there are actually other reasons to believe in God other than this, which we're going to talk about over the series. Others don't necessarily reject religion, but they do reject the Old Testament 
So in the second century, for example, there was this guy named Marcion. It was a theologian named Marcion. And Marcion did not know how to reconcile the violence of the Old Testament God with the teachings of Jesus. So he basically just kind of cut it off. He just rejected the Old Testament. He came to believe that the Old Testament describes the, the actions of a, of a tribal pagan deity. Um, his belief system actually came to be known as Marcionism. And Marcionism is actually still around. It just doesn't go by the name Marcionism. The, the problem here, though, is that Jesus talks about the Old Testament a lot, and Jesus never distances himself from the God of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus identifies himself as the God of the Old Testament. He identifies himself as Yahweh, which is the name of the God who ordered the, the Israelites to kill the Canaanites. So, so not only does Jesus not repudiate the violence of the Old Testament God, but he identifies himself as the God who gave these commands. So some people ignore the problem, some reject religion, some reject the Old Testament, all of which have problems. But let me tell you about the two most common responses that we find among Christians trying to deal with the problem of Old Testament violence. Plenty of people, fourthly, radically reinterpret the Old Testament. They radically reinterpret the Old Testament. What I mean is they conclude that the authors of the Old Testament misunderstood. They just misunderstood who God really is and what God was trying to tell them. They believe that the Jews of the Old Testament, they were just wrong in their interpretation of God's commands. So given what we know about Jesus, God the Father would have just never instructed the Israelites to commit mass murder in his name. So then, how did the Old Testament Jews think that God told them to do that? Well, these reinterpreters say the Israelites were listening to God with ancient ears. Back then, people thought that gods practiced warfare. It was a warfare culture. The ancient Jews regarded their god, Yahweh, in the same way that other cultures regarded their gods. So whatever God told them to do was sort of heard through a paradigm of war and death. That's just kind of how they thought. They had no framework for anything other than violence. The Israelites just heard God's commands with the warfare mentality that they couldn't escape. It, it's kind of like when you tell your kids something, and no matter what you say, they interpret it as, go pick a fight with your brother. <laughs> go clear, clear the table. What? Go pick a fight with my brother? Go clean your room. What? Go pick a fight with my brother? That's just kind of how they heard it. Now, there's actually a certain resonance to this idea because we have to admit that we interpret our experience of God through, through a culturally informed paradigm that we're not even aware of. The problem here, though, <laughs> is that the authors of the Old Testament seem to hear from God pretty clearly. I mean, they experience God in visions. They hear him speaking to them from clouds. How could they have misinterpreted God telling them something? How could they have misinterpreted that as, go kill all your enemies? And also, was God not capable of making himself more clear if he needed to? If he saw his people misinterpret him uh, to, you know, to go kill enemies, how could God not have said, oh, stop, no, nah, <laughs> not, what, not what I said? Which leads us to the fifth way that people respond to the problem of Old Testament violence. Uh, many Christians justify the violence one way or another. They justify the violence one way or another. If I know my audience, this is what many of us do. We justify the violence one way or another. I say one way or another because there's a lots of mitigating factors we should keep in mind 
when considering God's violent act. A mitigating factor is something that makes something less severe. Like there was this really big problem, but then I learned about this mitigating factor and it made it seem like less of a problem. Uh, Let me share with you some of these mitigating factors, which might, might take the edge off the idea that God committed mass murder. Now, for the sake of intellectual honesty, and I'm committed to intellectual honesty, I will have to point out that each of these mitigating factors has problems with it. And I'll share those with you too. I should also point out that there are other mitigating factors that we're not even going to get to, but they are there for you to research. For example, here's a mitigating factor. The people of Canaan that God commanded the Israelites to completely destroy were severely morally bankrupt. And they had been given centuries to change their ways. And we have archaeological evidence that these nations in Canaan practiced child and human sacrifice. So they weren't cheating on their taxes. They were sacrificing one another upon, you know, piles of fire and wood. And also, God gave these people lots of time to repent. I mean, the story of Jonah shows God trying to rescue the Ninevites from their own sin before destroying them. And even among the Canaanites, God gives certain righteous individuals the chance to escape, people like Rahab. So maybe God was justified in ordering their destruction because they were really, 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 really bad, like morally corrupt to the core, and God had given them time to change their ways. Maybe that mitigating factor changes the equation. Maybe. But, here's the rebuttal, that still seems to contradict with Jesus' teachings about how we are to love our enemies. I mean, were the Romans who killed Jesus any better? And yet Jesus prayed for their forgiveness and sent the apostles to go preach the good news to their friends. And also, were all the people in these nations that bad that they needed to be slaughtered? I mean, why would God order a nation that is sacrificing their children to be punished by killing their children? Okay, all right. Well, maybe here's another mitigating factor. Maybe these war instructions were hyperbolic war cries. So hyperbole is an exaggeration. Like when you come up to me after a sermon, you say that was an amazing sermon, and that's a hyperbole. (laughs) So in other words, maybe when God told them to kill everything that breathes, he was really just telling them, go kick their butts. Destroy them to kingdom come. He didn't actually intend any babies to get killed. We actually know from archaeology that armies did talk like this in in big kill-em-all terms when they just kind of meant beat the army. (laughs) But the problem here is that there are actually stories in the Old Testament when the Israelites are punished for not obeying God's commands to the letter. They let Moabite women live, and God punishes them severely until they kill the Moabite women. Okay, well, how about this? Another mitigating factor. Uh, We need to remember that that maybe these stories of warfare against the Canaanites were written much later with a theological purpose. So it's entirely possible that the conquest of Canaan didn't happen exactly like it's described in Scripture. These warfare stories may have been recorded later as historical events, not really as historical events, but, 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 but as parables 
reminding the Israelites to remain pure from pagan influence. Stories intended to warn later generations to stay pure. Well, that makes sense too, but again, why would God even allow himself be to be described this way in these stories? Okay, how about this? Maybe the need for a promised land free of pagan influence required God to make an exception to his love and mercy. Maybe God just really needed to carve out a little slip of land free of pagan influence where Jesus could eventually emerge from as his nation. And if God hadn't done this, maybe we would have no Messiah. So God needed to make an exception to his character of mercy so that the nation of Israel could exist and Jesus could emerge. Oh, that makes sense too. But are we comfortable with the idea that God would make an exception to his own character, a character of love and mercy. I mean, and, and does God's character ever even change? Is God even capable of making exceptions? The New Testament says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he wouldn't do that now, if he wouldn't destroy entire nations now, would he do that then? Okay, well, what about this? A couple more mitigating factors. Maybe God, through his actions, was showing the Israelites how terrible war is. Maybe he wanted to bring them face to face with the brutalities of war so that they would never do this ever again. Some people actually think this. He wanted them to see war close up. Yeah, problem. It didn't work (laughs) because they kept killing. All right, last one. Maybe God, as the author of life, can take away life. God's like the author of a book, you know, the writer of a TV series. If he needs to kill off characters for his own dramatic purposes... That's his right, right? God God can do what he needs. But these aren't TV characters. They're human beings created in his image. And again, why tell the Israelites to do it? That's sort of doubly cruel. Basically, there are lots of mitigating factors that we might consider as we try to solve the problem. And sure, some of them are more persuasive than others, but none of them are slam dunks. Skeptics have good reasons to all of them. Like I said, there is no escape from the Uh, from the thorniness of this problem. Which leads us to the question, what do we do with it? This is a conundrum. How do we solve it? What do we do? The credibility of our message, the character of our God are at stake. What do we do? Well, I can't tell you what to do. Uh, We will all wrestle with these sorts of questions in our own way. I can't tell you what to think. We're not that kind of church. My goal here is to help you understand these challenges and help you through them in a way that is honest and fair and consistent with your own convictions. If you want a church where the pastor tells you what to think, this is not that place. Having said that, here's what you should think. No, just joking. (laughs) Having said that, if this is a problem that really troubles you, Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but if it troubles you, as it does me, then perhaps it will benefit you to hear where I'm at right now on this question. How do I currently handle this? I say currently because theology, if we're honest, theology is a process. You're allowed to keep thinking, you're allowed to change your mind. And here's where I'm currently at on this question. I don't really know... (laughs) how to reconcile the teachings of Jesus with the violence of Yahweh in the Old Testament. 
I don't really know. Some of the mitigating factors make sense to me, but not all of them. Maybe the most mitigating factor, the most compelling factor to me, is the idea that God, as the author of life, is within his right to take life in the manner he chooses. As the author of life, God is within his right to take life in the manner he chooses for his own divine purposes, which we may or may not understand. As Job says in his book in the Old Testament, after the death of his family, Job says this, Yahweh the Lord gave and Yahweh has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So Yahweh created the earth. Yahweh created its inhabitants. Yahweh created Job's family. It's his to rule as he decides. Now, like I said, I'm not entirely satisfied by that because it does seem particularly cruel and contra his character to ask the Israelites to kill babies. If that's even how it went down, which might not be the case. So I know that as the author of life, God has the right to take life, but why ask soldiers to kill babies? Why kill people for the sins of their ancestors hundreds of years earlier? I don't get that. And for what it's worth, I'm not the only one. There are voices, even in Scripture, who are as perplexed by God's actions as I am. Job, the prophets, the psalmists, for one. These are, these are people in the Bible who seem as perplexed as me. God, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. There are different opinions in the Bible itself about the appropriateness of divine violence. So I'm not alone in my confusion. I'm part of a long tradition of question askers who are deeply bothered by divine violence. And we should be bothered by divine violence, for the record. If we're not bothered by divine violence, that might be a problem. I actually get a little uncomfortable with people who seem comfortable with the idea of God killing lots of people. I'm like, wow, you seem pretty okay with that. I don't think we should be okay with it. In a way, I'm okay not getting this. Having said that, I do know, I do know, hear me very clearly, I do know there are some things I don't understand. Perhaps including divine violence. There are some things that look cruel to me, but might, might have some possible explanation. A British apologist, C.S. Lewis, maybe you've known, heard of Clive Staples, he makes this point. Lewis says that trusting God is like a husband and wife learning to trust each other. Occasionally, a husband or wife might actually have reason not to trust the other. Maybe one finds evidence that the other has been cheating on them. And maybe the evidence is even compelling, you know, a picture of a spouse and a lover together. But maybe the spouse has demonstrated their faithfulness over the years. Maybe the spouse is trustworthy. Maybe there is reason for the photograph. So sure, there's a reason, you know, there's good evidence that they had some sort of affair. But you're just willing to trust that there's an explanation. That's what it means to be in relationship with others, a willingness to trust in someone when you don't know everything, even in the face of difficult evidence, like Old Testament violence. It's kind of like that. I mean, I trust Jesus. I believe in Jesus, the evidence for his life, the evidence for his resurrection. I've experienced the spirit of Jesus in my life. Jesus has proven his trustworthiness to me. I don't understand why he did not condemn his own violence in the Old Testament. But like Job, maybe there's something I don't get. In fact, I'm sure there is. But I don't have to understand these things. You see, Jesus doesn't really offer an explanation for Old Testament violence. What he tells us is something different. What he tells us is to love our enemies. 
And pray for those that persecute us. That's what he tells us to do. That's his interpretation of the Old Testament. Love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. Basically, what I've come to is this, to put a fine point on it. We don't have to understand what Jesus doesn't explain. We just have to obey what Jesus gives us to do. We don't have to understand what Jesus doesn't explain. We just have to do what Jesus tells us to do. And what has Jesus given us to do? He's told us to put away our swords. He's told us to turn the other cheek. He's told us to not murder, to seek peace. That's what God has most recently told us to do, as the book of Hebrews says in the New Testament. In the past, God has spoken to our ancestors at many times and in various ways, but in the last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God has spoken to us through Christ and told us to seek peace. What does that mean? It means to stand against violence. It means to seek paths to peace other than war. It means to pray for our enemies, not against them. It means to teach our kids that there are better ways to solve their problems than pushing. It means to not call people names like covidiots or libtards. It means to condemn violence against abortion clinics and government buildings. It means to have discussions, not arguments, conversations, not fights. I can't explain Old Testament violence very well, but I don't think God expects me to, which, thank God. God expects me to obey what his son has given me to do. To love my enemies in radical ways. And Jesus shows us how to do this. He doesn't just tell us, he shows us. And the irony of ironies, Jesus came to earth preaching love, preaching mercy, preaching peace. His enemies didn't like that, so what did they do? They arrested him, they tortured him, and they killed him on the cross. You know that Jesus could have called angels down from heaven to stop that from happening. He had the opportunity to do that, but he didn't because he knew that wouldn't have accomplished what needed to happen. What needed to happen was a sacrifice for our sins. You said the reality of the situation, the reality of our situation is that as the violent types of sinners we are, which is what we are, we are violent types of sinners, we have disqualified ourselves from heaven. As a species and as individuals, you and I have no place to go when we die except permanent separation from God. We have disqualified ourselves from heaven and earned hell instead. The the Bible talks about the final judgment when God will send sinners to hell and the righteous by faith to heaven. That's going to be a violent day. The book of Revelation says that all those opposed to God will be thrown into the lake of fire. So if the violence of the Old Testament makes you feel uncomfortable, imagine how uncomfortable you're going to feel being thrown into the lake of fire. Ah, this makes me feel uncomfortable. But if that happens, it will be because we deserve it. And if that happens, it will be because we chose it. We chose not to live with God. That won't be God's violence. That will be our violence coming back on ourselves. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want us to suffer violently forever, so he made a way. He used the world's violence against itself. He let the world violently murder his son, accepting his death as a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our violent ways. So we could be forgiven of all our sins. Whatever violent things you've done, and you've done much, you can be forgiven. Whatever hurtful words you've said to your spouse or children or friends, whatever punches you've thrown, whatever murderous acts you've committed in your heart, you can be forgiven by Jesus. Jesus gave himself over to our violence so that we could be saved from it. We can be saved from our violent end if we believe, if we repent.